I want to present a, an idea, a concept that's going to carry us through our, our series this next few weeks. To me, it seems a pretty self-evident concept, uh, but, but it may be one that we wrestle with to kind of understand. So let me start with a kind of an analogy and a metaphor. Imagine if you built a brand new house or you moved into a brand new house and you loved every single thing about it. I mean, there wasn't a thing you would change. In fact, you committed yourself to never changing anything. You said, I want this house to stay exactly like it is for decades to come. I'm never going to change a thing. Now, what happens when the light bulb goes bad, right? What do you, you got to do? You, you, have to, you have to change it, right? If the grass starts to grow, you, you, you got to change the grass. You've got to cut it down. If the hail, we experience that sometimes, if a bad hailstorm comes and destroys your roof, you've got, to, you've got to change the roof. Ironically, in order to keep it like it was when you moved in, you have to constantly be changing things. If you want to keep it new, if you want to keep it original, if you want to keep it like it was in the beginning, you can't refuse to change anything. Because if you refuse to change anything, eventually things will change whether you like it or not. In fact, things will begin to be dilapidated and worn out. You have to keep restoring and renewing and rejuvenating. And in fact, you have to keep changing things in order to change them back to the way they were in the beginning. I like the way a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton said it. He said it this way. If you leave a white fence post alone, it will soon be a black post. If you particularly want it to be white, you must be always painting it again. Isn't that true? I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive on one level where we think, I want this to stay the same, and so I'm never going to change anything. But refusing refusing to change doesn't result in things staying the same. It only results that things change in unintended ways. Again, let's think about that because that that's, that's a pretty altering thought, isn't it? It's a pretty interesting way to think about things. That if you, and this is true of you individually or us as a people, as a group, as the church, if you refused to change and you said, I'm never changing, I'm going to do the same things in the same ways that I've always done things and we're going to stay the same and never do anything different. If you refuse to change, oftentimes what happens isn't that you stay the same, it's that you change in unintended ways. And if you want to always be like you were in the beginning, if you want to be always like the original, then you have to be committed to always being in a state of renovation, a state of restoration, a state of change, where you're always going back to the original and saying, how do we keep things like they were in the very beginning? And that's the way what we're trying to do as Christians, isn't it? It's we're listening to the words of the apostles, and that's how we know anything about Jesus. I mean, you wouldn't know anything about Jesus being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You wouldn't know anything about him offering his body and his blood for your redemption and salvation. You wouldn't know anything about what it looks like and means to follow Jesus if it wasn't for the writings of the apostles. 
And so we're always, as individuals, hopefully going back to that and saying, what does that look like? And what does that look like for me to live as a Jesus follower today and constantly changing, right? I mean, we should be opening up the word and constantly changing to go back to what we should be. James puts it this way. He says, when you read the word, it's like looking in a mirror. He said, but some people look at a mirror and... Apparently, it's like they got mud all over their face or something. A change needs to be made. But they forget what they look like, and they go away, and they don't do anything about it. And he encourages his readers to, when when you read, and you see that a change needs to happen, you need to make a change. See, but the same is true for the church as a whole, isn't it? I mean, what, what is a church supposed to be? What's a church supposed to look like? What are, what is it that we're supposed to be about? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? There's no way any of us could know that just by thinking about it or dreaming about it. The only way to know what it is that Jesus' followers are supposed to be doing as a group is to look at the writings of the New Testament. And to always be going back to that, always be restoring, always be renewing, always be rejuvenating, always be changing back to the original. Because otherwise we have a tendency to drift, don't we? And in fact, Paul, Paul, the apostles were restorationists. I mean, in the very beginning, I mean, they would go and they'd preach to people in a community and they'd say, you know, here's Jesus, the Savior. And they'd say, I believe that. And they were baptized and they started following Jesus. And then eventually they'd kind of start to drift and they'd start to eventually think different and act different and talk different and do things they weren't supposed to do that weren't in keeping with the teachings of the good news of Jesus. And so Paul would write to them or he'd go to them and he'd say, stop that. Get back to what you were before. So if we are, if we are going to follow Jesus and if we're going to be a biblical church, then we've always got to be in a state of changing back to be like the apostles, like Jesus taught us to be. Let me give you an example of how that works sometimes, that when we refuse to change, we change in unintended ways. Now, if you've ever seen, I don't think anybody was around to remember this, but if you've ever seen a picture of a professional sporting event like a hundred years ago, you've seen those pictures, so you see a picture of a crowd at a professional baseball game, and all of the men are wearing suits and ties. I mean, that just amazes me. I mean, at a ball game, they're all wearing suits and ties. Apparently, that's the way that it was then. Now, you know, if you go to a ball game, you're just lucky if all the men are wearing shirts at all, right? You know, it's, it, it's just different now. Uh, but but that's the way that it was then. Men went out, they went to town, or they went to a, an event, and everybody would wear a suit and a tie. Eventually, things began to change as a culture. One of the things that happened, though, in the church is that we said, oh, we don't want that to change. We want to stay the same. We refuse to change. When you come here, you ought to wear a suit and tie, and we kind of refuse to change. Now, there's nothing wrong with wearing a suit and tie, but... What ended up happening was in our refusal to change, a lot of times we changed in an unintended way so that people in the community, especially those that didn't have nicer clothes to wear. In fact, right now in our community, I guarantee that there are people in your life, you could invite them to come next Sunday to church and you might hear as a response, I'd love to go, but I don't have nice enough clothes to wear, right? And we ended up changing so that instead of being a hospitable place where people felt welcome, 
in keeping with what the New Testament actually says. In fact, if you read James's letter, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to the Christians and he said, listen, don't shame people that come into your assembly and they don't have nice clothes to wear. If a poor person in rags comes into your assembly, don't shame them, don't dishonor them, don't put preference on the one who's dressed well and degrade the one that isn't dressed as well. And and we ended up, I think, sometimes ended up doing exactly that. In our effort not to change, in our effort to refuse to change and say, I want church to feel the way it felt when I was a kid, we ended up changing in unintended ways. So we have to be very careful, don't we? That, That what we do as Christians, what we do as Christians individually, or what we do as Christians as a collective group, that we're, we're constantly saying, do I do this and do I feel this way and do I talk this way and do we do these things because this is what the Bible teaches or is it because we're a product of our culture or a reaction to changes we see in our culture? Am I going back to the Bible or am I going back in my memory and saying I refuse to change? Because in order to be a biblical church, in order to be a biblical person, in order to live out what we see in Scripture, we've got to be in a constant state of restoration. Always going back to the New Testament, always saying, what is it that these inspired apostles, Jesus' spokesmen who went into the world to teach people to follow Jesus, what is it that they taught? And how can we put that into action Today, And that means we're going to have to change individually and as a people if we're going to stay the same. And I know, again, that's kind of counterintuitive. Let me, so the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some of the ways that as this congregation, we're committed to doing things in a biblical way, even if it's kind of countercultural. And oftentimes the teaching of the New Testament is countercultural, isn't it? Let me, let me give you an example. So today we're going to talk about elders. So, when I say elders, when I say church elders, when you think about that word or that idea, you might think about the elders that we have here. And I'll tell you, even if they weren't here to hear me say this, we have such amazing elders. And so maybe those men, specifically their faces and what they look like and how you've known them and how they've touched your life, maybe they're the ones that come to your mind when you read the word elders. Or, or maybe it's elders that you've had in your childhood or at a different congregation. It was the elders you grew up with. Maybe it's a, a specific elder that you really loved, or maybe it's a specific elder that you didn't really love. You know, whatever the case may be, you know, you, you probably have this picture of who, who elders are, what an elder is, what an elder looks like, who he's supposed to be, or who he's not supposed to be. But I think that sometimes we forget that this word or idea of elders, of a group of, elder means older, sorry elders, but it does, you know, so older men to, to, to serve in this role, it's not unique to Christianity. In fact, many tribal cultures throughout the centuries and right now all over the world have elders of their towns and elders of their villages or elders of their tribes, men or women, I guess, entrusted with being a repository of wisdom and knowledge and experience. Men who guide and teach and judge and discipline and kind of keep the tribe or the village or the town on track and help them to know this is where we came from, this is who we are, this is how we're supposed to live, this is the kind of people that our tribe is. 
and, and it's always expected that the people of the tribe or the people of the village listen to and respect and follow the teaching and the wisdom and the instruction of the elders. And in fact, Israel itself was a, a tribal culture, right? I mean, all we have to do is look at the, the Old Testament to be reminded of the fact that even Israel had elders. That's the next slide there, guys. And, and just to think about the fact that in their, in their towns and cities, and, and in the tribes of Israel, and as a whole nation, all of their elders would come together as a council. You remember the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day? The most notable and respected elders of Israel would come together and would work together, or they were supposed to, to judge and to lead and to guide and to direct. And even cities themselves had their set of elders And so when we read the book of Deuteronomy, it's supposed that in all of these different cities, there would be elders who would sit at the city gates and they would make judgments and they would help teach and guide and direct the next generation to be followers of Yahweh, to be followers of God. And so what we tend to do is we tend to picture our elders and then project that back onto the text, right? So we we read elders, or we read church, or we read worship, or we read whatever, and we take what we're doing, and we kind of project it backwards. But, but that can kind of get us in trouble, can't it? That's when we tend to drift, is when we tend to look at things through our own lens, rather than trying our best to kind of get into the shoes of the first audience and read it through their eyes. And so when these apostles of Jesus would go into a community and they, they would preach the gospel and they would bring together people of every nation. And, I mean, think about what it was like in a first century congregation. I mean, we read church and we think about here, don't we? We think about people sitting, maybe not padded chairs, but at least wooden pews, right? I mean, we, so that, we, we think that, don't we? And we think people that are dressed kind of like us and look kind of like us, but a first century gathering wasn't at all like that. I mean, they came together and they sang and they worshiped, but imagine if you were a slave and you had spent all day Sunday, because Sunday was the first working day of the week, and you had spent all day in your master's barn or your master's stables, and you came to assemble with your brothers and sisters and your hands and your clothes stained with the work that you've been doing all day and you smelled and you were tired and you were dirty and another person might be wealthy, one person might be a Greek and one person might be a Roman and one person might be free and one person might be a slave and one person might be a man and one person might be a woman but all of these people coming together as a church community and we need to read the Bible and see it through their eyes and then bring that forward. And say, if that's the way that it was then, and we're trying to live as Christian people today, followers of Jesus today, how do we live out that now? And as we think about this idea of elders, it makes sense that in every community, as the apostles would go and they'd gather people together, Romans and Greeks and Jews and slaves and free and men and women, and gather them together, And over that community, they would appoint elders. 
It's kind of subversive if you think about it, isn't it? Because that community probably already had elders. Maybe that synagogue already had elders. Maybe that town or village or city already had elders and leadership and structure. And here these new people are coming in and kind of pulling these people to one side and all different races and all different kinds of people and putting them together and establishing their own leadership over them, their own elders who will lead them and guide them and teach them and direct them. It's it's almost to say that there is now a community within a community, a village within a village, a city within a city, a counter-cultural community within the larger unbelieving community. And that's exactly what was happening. So every time Paul or the other apostles would go into a city and he would teach people Jesus is the King of Kings and Jesus is the Lord of Lords and Jesus offers up his own self and his own blood to save you and make you part of God's people. And they were baptized because they believed it and they became followers of Jesus then he would make sure that that new community within the larger community had its own set of older men who would be a repository of wisdom and teaching and experience and knowledge and godliness and holiness that would help teach and guide and direct that community of people. And so when we read in the book of Titus, that's where we're going to look this morning, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. So the Apostle Paul, if, you, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that Paul got arrested and he was sent to Rome and he was under house arrest in Rome. And then eventually we think that he probably was released from that imprisonment and he did some more mission work and traveled around before again being arrested again and taken back to Rome, thrown into a dungeon, probably beheaded in Rome. But before that happened, he, he apparently visited the island of Crete. And Crete was kind of a place with... People a lot like us and a lot like our neighbors and a lot like our world and people that needed desperately the good news about Jesus. And so Paul went there and he left Titus there. So Paul went on to other places and he left Titus there. And here's what he said to this young preacher, Titus. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. That's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Kind of stick that in the back of your mind. Think about that for a second. That... Even though Paul had gone into this community and he had baptized people and they were believers and they were saved and they were following Jesus, that wasn't quite enough. It wasn't enough that there was just this group of people and they were followers of Jesus. There was still disorder. Things were still left undone. There were still things that needed to be tidied up and set straight. And Paul says, I left you there because it's, it's not just enough. That, that some people are followers of Jesus. It's not just enough that they're baptized. It's not just enough that they, that they make a confession. They, they need to be organized and ordered, and they need elders to watch over them. That's what he says. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I mean, it's the same thing we see all throughout the New Testament, that every time an apostle goes into a community and teaches them to follow Jesus and people respond to that invitation, that they're not just left to fend for themselves. See, that that's kind of our thinking, isn't it? It's like your relationship with God is kind of a private thing between you and God. It's just kind of an individual thing. That's not at all what we read in the New Testament. 
What we read in the New Testament is that Christians that become followers, people that become followers of Jesus need to be gathered together into a community in every single town. Every single town where there are Christians, there needs to be a set of older, godly, wise men who are appointed to oversee those Christians in that community. Every town. Because there has to exist this kind of embedded community within a community, this embedded village within a village, this embedded town within a town, this embedded city within a city. (laughs) And I mean, kind of step out of it for a second. That's that's what we are, aren't we? We're a city within a city. We're a, a village within a village, a community within a larger community embedded here and planted here, not for our own sake, but for the sake of our neighbors and everyone around us. But it's not enough that you're a Christian and I'm a Christian and they're a Christian and we got a lot of Christians. Christians need to be brought together and have elders appointed over them to oversee them in every town as Paul had directed Titus. Now look at verse 6. Here's what, here's what an elder looks like. And again, it's really hard, isn't it, not to project onto the text our experience with elders, for good or for ill, and to kind of look at it through our lens. But we have to do our best to kind of picture these This category of elder that the Jewish people already had in their mind and many people in that time had in their mind. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I mean, can you imagine how, how impactful would a village within a village, a community within a community, how impactful would they be if the elders that oversaw that community, the elders that sort of sat metaphorically at their gate to kind of help them and guide them and teach them with wisdom and experience, if their own children were running wild in the streets, if their their own children were out having all kinds of wild parties with everyone else. And Paul says, these men need need to know how to not be open to these kinds of charges because they lead and guide their families well. And he'll tell Timothy why he says that in just a second. We'll get to that. So he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then look at verse 7. For an overseer. Now, some of your translations say a bishop, and that's where we get that word. But when we think bishop, we think a guy in a, in a big hat, right? You know, we, so we, we have a hard time not importing what we've seen and experienced in the West and importing that onto the text. But overseer, that's a great word, because it means exactly what it sounds like it means. Somebody who oversees, who watches over, who kind of checks up on people, makes sure people are doing what they're supposed to do, making sure things are in order, watching over things. And so Paul says that these elders that Titus is going to be appointing are going to be overseers. And he says, as God's steward, he must be above reproach. God's steward. Now the word there in the Greek that's translated as steward because when we think steward, we just think taking care of something that doesn't belong to you, right? And that's, that's right. That's what this word means too. But, but it's more than that. In fact, it's a compound word that is both the word for house and the word for law. House 
and law. This word was used to describe someone who was a household manager. So if you were really wealthy, you could, you could have somebody that you didn't have to worry about the day-to-day things. You know, you could just kind of turn that over to them. I don't worry about ordering the food. I don't worry about who gets fed and where this money goes and what's going in and what's coming out and what's getting washed and what's getting eaten. I don't have to worry about all that. I have a steward, a household manager that watches out for my stuff. Now, again, that implies that the house doesn't belong to the steward. It belongs to the master. But he's responsible for managing things. In fact, it's a lot like a restaurant owner or a a store owner might hire a manager to make sure things run smoothly, to make sure that everybody has what they need and things come in and go out and everything is done the way that it's supposed to. And that's what Paul is saying this church needs. This is what he's saying every church needs. This is what he's saying is every Christian needs. Every Christian needs this type of oversight, this type of leadership, this type of management, this type of stewardship, because this is Jesus' household. And Jesus has appointed these elders, these godly, wise, knowledgeable men to oversee what happens in his family, to make sure that people are taken care of. And things are handled the way that they're supposed to be handled. And he says, these are the kinds of qualities of these overseers and stewards. He says this, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Going on in verse 7, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. So he has to be a humble, patient man. These men as a group have to be humble and patient. Not a drunkard, so sober men. Not violent. That is not looking for a fight, non-violent sort of men that aren't ready to fight at the drop of a hat, not verbally or physically, not greedy for gain. Is there a generous sort of people? Hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and discipline. I mean, that should describe all of God's people, shouldn't it? In fact, as you read through the book of Titus, this is exactly the kind of lifestyle that Titus is supposed to be teaching these people to live. But he says, when you set things in order, these people are going to need shepherds, elders, overseers, stewards, who model as examples this type of lifestyle. Then he goes on to say, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders are supposed to be the men who, again, are this repository of wisdom and experience and knowledge, but especially knowledge of God's word, the gospel, to teach people this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And when when people drift... God knows our tendency, doesn't he? I mean, he knows. He knows that it doesn't take you long and it doesn't take me long. It doesn't take us long as a people to kind of drift off track and start thinking things that aren't in keeping with the gospel and saying things that aren't in keeping with the gospel and doing things that aren't in keeping with the gospel. And he says, these people are going to need men who are able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, who are teaching things that are wrong, They need men who will stand up and set things in order and keep things on the right path. Because again, if we want to keep things the way they're supposed to be, we have to be in a constant state of change. Always reminding ourselves of 
you know what? Our culture says this, but this is wrong and not in keeping with the gospel and bringing people back. Look at what Paul says to Timothy, another young preacher. He's given him the same sort of instructions about appointing elders. And he says that an elder must be a person who manages his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? See, there's a similarity, isn't there? He says there's a similarity between home leadership and church leadership. There's a similarity between what fathers do in the home and what elders do for the community within a community. What elders do for this group of Jesus' followers. Now, let's, let's get real practical, and this may seem real obvious, but I think we see it all through the New Testament, don't we, that every Christian needs a church family, and every church family needs godly overseers. Now, as a congregation, we're committed to that, right? We have godly overseers, and we're the kind of place, hopefully, where anybody and everybody feels welcome, where they can come here and learn what it is to follow Jesus. That's not really the question, though. The question is, have you bought into this idea? Have I bought into this idea? Have we as individuals bought into this idea that every Christian needs a church family and that every church family needs godly overseers? Because I think our tendency, our tendency is to say, well, they really need overseers. You know, some of those people over there, they really need overseers. I mean, they get off track and they're saying all kinds of nonsense and doing all kinds of nonsense. They need overseers, but I'm pretty good. You know, I'm pretty wise and mature. No, 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 no. Every, every Christian, even other shepherds need each other. I think our shepherds would tell you that. That even they need oversight and shepherding each other. Every Christian needs a church family. And every church family needs godly overseers. See, this is countercultural. We live in a culture that's very consumer-driven. And very individualistic. We look out for ourselves and our needs and we, we just think that we can kind of fly solo and we talk about individual spirituality. And, and yes, absolutely, you individually need to have your walk and your faith and all of those things. But it's impossible. It's unbiblical. It's not in keeping with Jesus' teaching or the teaching of his apostles to be out there by yourself. Every Christian needs a church family, and every church family needs godly overseers. And so the question for you and for me today is, how how bought into that am I? To what degree am I investing? To what degree am I active in this church family? Here it is. It's all around us, this community within a community, this community of Jesus' followers who would love to encourage you and build you up and work together with you to reach the world for Jesus. To what extent are you involved with that mission? To what extent do you know our overseers? To what extent do you avail yourself to their wisdom and teaching? When you're having marriage problems, even if they're just little marriage problems, don't wait until things are worse than they are now. Avail yourself to their wisdom and their experience and their their godly teaching. Lean on each other. Lean on our shepherds. Let them guide you. Let them teach you. Submit to their leadership. It's too easy to try to fly solo in our world. 
But that's not what Jesus intended for his people. He intended for you not only to to be here on Sundays, that's great, but be truly, actively, radically involved in this community of Jesus' people. Thank God that we have such godly overseers, but let's make sure that we know them We love them. We show them our appreciation, that we listen to them, that we let them teach us and guide us and share with us their experience and their wisdom. Let's live out the first century teachings in the midst of this 21st century world. And we're going to sing a song in a second. And you know that you know the drill. You know that you're welcome to come, let your church family know that we love you and we want to pray for you and let, let us know your needs. But just a second, in my office, the shepherds will meet back there and there's nothing in the world they would rather do than pray with you and get to know you better. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that isn't yet a Christian and you know it's time not only to give your life to Jesus, but to become a part of his people and a part of what his people are doing in the world. And if we can help you with that in any way, shape, or form, now's your opportunity. Come forward as we stand and sing.